Blog Talk Radio. Celebrating their 20th year in radio broadcasting with news not heard in the news. The International Taz and Paula Show interviews experts from all walks of life, bridging research and personal life journeys, revealing new ways to unleash life with a passion of a heartbeat. And now, here's Taz and Paula. Well, here's to a fabulous day wherever you are. And if you weren't on the edge of getting excited about life, you will be by the end of this interview. Right now, I feel wide-eyed and bushy-tailed, as the saying goes, because our next guest has captivated life in ways not many have experienced and put into print that this historical input can allow for new beginnings to arise and our world can be seeded with true Earth history. Today, we are speaking with Thomas J. Carey, whose latest book co-authored with Don Schmidt, The Children of Roswell, A Seven-Decade Legacy of Fear, Intimidation, and Cover-Ups. This book simply speaks to lifting humanity so that trust can return. Paula, this is so very exciting and powerful. You are now listening to the International Taz and Paula Show. I'm Taz. And I'm Paula. Well, Thomas J. Carey, an Air Force veteran who held top-secret clearance and has been on the leading edge with investigations of what really happened to Roswell, Roswell in 1947. Tom has published over 40 uh, works on this particular subject, And he has lectured on the radio and TV, appeared as a guest on Coast to Coast AM with George Norrie, and then again with Larry King Live, the Fox News Channel and Sci-Fi Channel documentary, the History Channel, the Roswell documentaries, to name a few. Thomas, Carrie, we are so proud and honored to have you with us today. Welcome to our show. Wonder. Oh, Tom, are you there? Hold on, just a moment. Don't know what. There you go. Are you you with us? I I, I am here. Oh, good, <laughs> good, good, good. Well, my first can you hear question me? is: Yes, we can now. Our, well, our Paula, first, uh, Paula first... and uh, Taz, I am honored to be with you today. Oh, great. Thank you. My first question for you, uh, Tom, is how did you meet uh, Donald Schmidt, your co-author? How did you, the two of you get together? Well, that's a good, uh, that is a good question. Uh, let's see. Uh, this would be 1991. That's 25 years ago. My goodness. Uh, <laughs> I, was, uh, I had read the, the book, The Roswell Incident. Uh, which was published in 1980, and I, it, the book just really blew me away. Uh, I had been interested in UFOs uh, most of my life, but as you know, as a, a casual reader, that was pretty much it. But I was very interested in the subject, and 
I became the Mutual UFO Network's uh, state section director for southeastern Pennsylvania from 1986 to about, uh, oh, 2001. And... Uh, I also had joined an outfit in New, uh, in Chicago called the J. Allen Hynek Center for UFO Studies, uh, mostly to get their monthly publication, which was called the International UFO Reporter. Well, in that uh, in that uh, journal that they published every month, they were there were stories about these two fellows who were opening up the Roswell investigation again because not much had been written after the 1980 book. So these two fellows, one was named Kevin Randall and the other was named Don Schmidt. They were a team. They were uh, reopening the Roswell case. And I said, hmm, this sounds interesting. And uh, so I read a few of their articles and uh, enough to know that they were they were really on the ball and serious about it. So I called up uh, Kevin Randall and uh, asked them about uh, who – was doing anything about investigating the alleged uh, archaeologists. There was a team of archaeologists who allegedly were the first ones at the crash site back in 1947, and had had either Kevin or Don done anything about trying to find out who they were. And uh, Kevin said, well, basically, no. So I said, listen, I have a background in anthropology and archaeology. I live right outside of Philadelphia, where the University of Pennsylvania is, which is where these uh, archaeologists were allegedly from, was the University of Pennsylvania, Ivy League school. I said, let me uh, go down to the university, uh, poke around and see what I can find out about uh, these archaeologists. Well, most of the time... Uh, in that period, I talked to Kevin, Kevin Randall, uh, rarely to uh, Don Schmidt, and it wasn't until 1998, now this is like a number of years later, that I found myself on the board of directors of the J. Allen Hynek Center for UFO Studies in Chicago, and I went to the meetings in Chicago, and at one of these we- uh, meetings, uh, Don came down from Wisconsin. He lives up there in, uh, right outside of Milwaukee, and he came down to the meeting, and I uh, met him, and uh, he said, uh, you know, he's, he's going to be traveling to Roswell the next month. Uh, would anybody like to come with him? And I said, yeah, I, I, I'll go. I'd like to go down to Roswell. I've never been there. I've been interested in this case, and uh, let's let's see what we can find out. And so that was our that was our really our initial uh, research collaboration, uh, May of 1998. And we've been a team since then, which is now. Let's see, 1998 to now is what is that? Uh, 18, 18 years, yeah. which is a long, yeah. long time in any uh, any endeavor. <laughs> so that that's uh, sure. that's so that's how we uh, became a team because no one else uh, no one else was doing it. That uh, you know, in 1997. I don't know if you recall it or not, but that was the 1997 was the 50th anniversary year of the Roswell crash, and there was a lot of hoopla surrounding it that year. Uh, it was featured on the cover of Time magazine. CNN spent a whole day down in Roswell on July the 4th, and 
most of the Roswell books were written that year. And uh, once that was all over, uh, people, you know, they basically lost interest in Roswell. And Don and I wanted to continue investigating the case in a proactive way. I mean, uh, pro by proactive, I mean actually going out in the field doing what they used to call gumshoe work, uh, investigating, knocking on doors, uh, interviewing witnesses, traveling to the crash site, seeing, uh, having an archaeological dig. That's the proactiveness of it, uh, as opposed to just sitting back uh, in your easy chair and waiting for a phone call that will never come. Now, were people actually um, available that you could talk with it when you knocked on their door, that they were willing to say something? Most of them were not happy to see us. They were but not why? happy. <laughs> in fact, we had a number of it. doors uh, slammed in our face, and uh, uh, when we call them on the phone, they they hang up. And uh, no, it was uh, it was it, it take you have to be able to handle rejection. <laughs> and, uh, were uh, they I intimidated, I, Tom? Were they intimidated, and and they were uh, you know by maybe government mostly, officials? Yes, the ones that would not talk to us, they were intimidated back in 1947. And as we found out from the children, our, our most recent book uh, that, that came out this year is called The Children of Roswell, a seven-decade legacy of fear, intimidation, and cover-up. And it features the children rather than the actual participants uh, in the event, uh, who are mostly 99% gone now. Uh, I mean, uh, figure this. A 20-year-old back in 1947, next year will be 70. I'm sorry, will be 90 years old. We're approaching 70 years from the event. So we've been increasingly talking to uh, first children. Well, first it was the original participants, and then it was the children, and now the grandchildren we're talking to. So, uh, yes, they were they were intimidated. Whole families were intimidated. They were threatened with death if they ever talked about what they knew. And I have to say that the cover-up did it did it did last for 31 years, from 1947 to 1978, when the uh, first person of note. Uh, the, the base intelligence officer back at uh, Roswell in 1947 broke silence. He he was on a ham ham radio network, and he started talking about the case, and that was 1978. And uh, back in those days, uh, Stan Friedman was going around talking about his uh, uh, about UFOs and the cover up and. Uh, he was found himself in Louisiana. I don't know if it was Baton Rouge or New Orleans, but uh, he'd given a talk down there. And after the talk, someone suggested that he talk to this fellow who lived not too far away in Louisiana named Jesse Marcel, who had been the base intelligence officer at the Roswell base in 47. Uh, that he that Stan should talk to him because he he claimed to handle had handled pieces of an actual flying saucer some years ago. So uh, before he left Louisiana, Stan called uh, Jesse and thus began the civilian investigation of the Roswell incident. That was in 1978. Two years later, they 
they wrote their book, uh, The Roswell Incident, which is the book I mentioned earlier that I read that really turned me on to the case. And uh, I, at, uh, when I hooked up with Don in 1998, I, I wanted to do something proactive. I, I wanted to actually be involved in a, a nuts, and bolts, nuts and bolts case of uh, UFOs rather than, you know, when I was, when I was the MUFON state section director, you know, the reports I, were, I, were, I was getting where it mostly lights in the sky and that sort of thing and and I don't know if you've ever investigated anything like that but after the after the fourth or fifth one of those it gets it gets pretty old and monotonous so uh I wanted to do something else and uh along came this uh, uh the Randall and Schmidt team who were reopening the Roswell case and ultimately I hooked up with uh, Don in the mid 1990s, uh, I'm sorry, the late 1990s, and uh, we're still at it. Uh, in fact, we found three new witnesses this year. I, I you know, it's oh, wow. uh, you never, you never know. Just when you think there's no more, you you find some. But the now were the, they the, were they young witnesses or older witnesses? Oh, these these were fellows in their 80s. They were oh, they were there okay. at the yeah they were there at the base in 47. And, well, by, uh, that, by the time you're 80, you don't care what you say. <laughs> right, right. But what we found, mostly the, the the people who people who wouldn't talk to us were ones who were who had been threatened and warned not to talk about it, and the other ones who uh, they may or may not have been threatened, but what they were were uh, either military or government uh, retirees. And they were on government pensions, and their f- fear was that if they talked about Roswell, that they would lose their government pensions. So that's a yeah. big, that's a big uh, gun at your head, uh, yeah, so yeah. to speak. And yeah. uh, no matter what we would tell them, that you know you have nothing to fear, that no one has ever been uh, uh, had any result like that, that, where they lost a pension or something, you know, something nefarious. Uh, uh they they were not going to upset their pensions uh, they were not going to take the chance but fortunately there were enough people who weren't on government pensions and did not make the military a career and those are the ones that talked the most they they were not on a government pension they were civilians and they didn't they didn't make the uh military career so they didn't have those uh, guns hanging over their or that noose hanging over their head so Uh, Those are the ones that talk mostly. One of the stories I've heard, which may not be true at all, but that their memories had been messed with at one point. Did you ever hear that story? No. Say say that again. I'm sorry. The witnesses' memories uh, were messed with by the government. So I don't know if you – that was just a story I I heard. I have have not heard that story. I know – like uh, the sheriff of, of Chavez County, George Wilcox, uh, he died young, and his wife Inez. Now he was the sheriff when this all this was going on, and his wife uh, said to the day she died. No, no, that doesn't sound right. She said to the day, day she dies. We got this story from her daughters, and. Uh, her daughters told us that their mother believed to the day she died that her husband, the sheriff, 
had been given something given something by the Air Force that made him that made Alzheimer's uh, onset very early, and uh, he died of Alzheimer's. But it, it, he had a very early onset, and his wife felt that uh, he had been messed with uh, by the Air Force. Yeah. So, but I. Uh, I, if you have a, if you have a story, that's pretty near the only one that I've uh, heard of. Where they, where they now the, art, the, the artif- yeah, the artifacts they found, the pieces. Um, a lot of local people had pieces of the artifact. Um, has any of them been? Any of the artifacts been found? That's a that that's our biggest um, uh, disappointment in the case or investigation is that we've had a number of stories from people who claim to have uh, artifacts uh, or know of people who have artifacts and whenever we investigate them we always reach a point where they we, we say they run away on us they they stop communicating which le- leads us to conclude that they never had anything they were either playing tricks or who knows what they were doing. We've had a lot of that. Um, but we know that there there are artifacts out there, especially with the ranchers that uh, lived around Roswell, because uh, they, they got to the crash site first. And uh, we know, we, we've heard stories that so-and-so has a piece or several pieces, and uh, when we confront that person, they say, "Oh no, no, I don't." Uh, where did you hear that story? So, but we we believe the people in certain cases who have told us about that that uh, uh, we believe that's true. But for some reason, they're they they're not uh, producing them. But we've had several archaeological digs out at the site, and unfortunately, we haven't come up with anything there. But we do believe that if uh, we are going to find the piece, it's not going to be at the actual site because that was, they had soldiers down on their hands and knees cleaning that up. And uh, they brought in machinery to, you know, to scour the the uh, desert floor. So, so there was nothing left, but there were, we suspect that the winds out there had blown some of the pieces uh, maybe miles away from the site. So, Someday some uh, hiker is going to uh, inadvertently uh, trip over a piece somewhere out there, we hope. <laughs> and, uh, Tom, uh, maybe, Tom maybe. I kind of I question if um, you were out there um, investigating in that, in that format. Was there, uh, by chance, a different kind of frequency on the ground that was left from this um, uh, crash and that could be um, assumed that maybe it was because of that. Oh, um, a different frequency, you mean like an elect- some sort of uh, radioactivity or something? Radioactivity uh, or, or who knows what what the equipment, you know, or the, you know, finds might have left behind, even uh, minuscule pieces that, you know, yeah. might... You know, we have a fellow uh, on his own. He's been out to the site many times. He lives in Roswell, and he he's a, um, a geologist, and he he frequent he frequents the site, and he he fi- he's found a lot of little pieces of 
you know, it, you know, they look silvery, and uh, so far none of them has turned out to be otherworldly. So, the thing, the thing is that they they took a week to clean up that site, and uh, they had uh, hundreds of soldiers out there or airmen, and uh, they even had them down on their knees with orders to pick up anything that wasn't natural. So the actual site itself, which is about a mile long and a couple hundred feet wide, that was that was scoured. In fact, they, they would go back years later just to make sure there wasn't anything that popped up, you know, uh-huh. that might have been hit, hidden behind a bush or something that had blown out or had come up from a, <clears throat> excuse me, a, uh, a rain shower. So, uh they've they've covered they've covered the waterfront as you as you would say in uh, trying to locate uh, little shards of uh, wreckage when you wrote this book uh, this latest book the children of roswell when you wrote it was there like when you're writing a book sometimes something just kind of goes surprises you that you even remembered to put it in or an unusual experience took place as you were writing it. Um, and, <laughs> yes. uh, and Okay, all right. And it left you wondering if your readers would be able to capture the essence, the sure essence and the impact that it had well, on you. Let us, in, one, in one chapter there I, I, uh, that I wrote, uh, my co-author said I was going to have to tone it down <laughs> because <laughs> we might get sued because <laughs> it was a – there's a chapter on Richard's uh, – uh, do, do you have a copy of the book? I, I did. I see Richard's Cave, yes. Yes, it's Richard's Cave. And uh, um, that was quite an experience, and uh, I had to really tone that down because Richard's Cave is actually a uh, – we had looked for it for years. We had heard these stories about this fellow named Dan Richards, who was a teenager at the time of the crash, and he was sort of a ne'er-do-well fella. He was always challenging authority and uh, what have you. And uh, up around Corona, where he lived, see, the, the ship exploded in the air over near Corona and rained down all this little pieces of debris. Well, Dan uh, was one of the first ones to the site, and he pocketed a number of uh, pieces of this wreckage. And we talked to friends of Dan's, because Dan, he died in uh, 1950. He had just gotten his driver's license, and he celebrated by killing himself. Uh, He drove a pickup into a telephone pole, so it was a solo accident, and uh, that was it for him. And uh, but his friend said, "Oh, have you found his cave?" We said, "No. What? Uh, where is it?" And they said, "Well, it's up near Corona, up near their ranch. They had an old ranch there." Well, that area is uh, really uh, rife with caves because it's a limestone area, and uh, when you mix limestone and water, you get a cave. So there are a lot of them up there. So we searched uh, for years uh, to uh, find out uh, where this cave was. We finally found somebody who uh, told us that, oh, yeah, he knows where it's at. And he gave us directions because he was real old. He couldn't take us to it, but he gave us directions. 
And he said, yeah, he said, I used to, Dan had these funny pieces of wreckage that he got from a flying saucer crash. And uh, he said, I used to throw them pieces up in the air, and he would shoot them with a rifle (laughs) that he had stolen from the military. This was an Army rifle, and he would shoot these little pieces just to see the bullets bounce off, you know. And uh, he says, uh, boy, that was really something. And, uh, you know, he had a lot of stuff in that cave, usually stuff that he didn't want people to find. So... In the meantime, we had uh, located uh, the the woman who turned out to be Dan Richards' cousin. She was now running the ranch. And uh, so we contacted her, and she said, oh, yeah, come on out. I know where that's uh, – yeah, yeah, I think I know where that cave is. So we went out to the ranch. And let me tell you, this is uh, – uh, Don Don Schmidt and I, neither one of us have uh, ever smoked, you know. We never smoke cigarettes. <laughs> we don't drink. Well, uh, we knock on the door, and, uh, and uh, oh, come on in, come on. So, and the minute I entered the house, now, the only thing I can uh, liken it to is if you're like, you have an allergy to, like, um, animal fur, and you just, you start gagging. Well, the minute I stepped in the house, I started gagging because it was rife with cigarette smoke, stale cigarette smoke. I said, oh, my God, what what am I going to do here? And so we entered the house, and uh, over to my left, there was an elderly man in his, uh, I would say, 70s or 80s, and uh, he's sitting there in the corner in a lounger, and he's got a, He's smoking a cigarette, and uh, his ashtray is filled up about a foot high with uh, ashes. And I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, what uh, what do we got here? And uh, so we're walking towards the kitchen, and uh, I noticed that the dog was wearing a smoking jacket. <laughs> and uh, I looked uh, over, you know, in the floorboards, the, the the floor molding, I saw a little a little uh, critter, you know, like it lives in the, you know, uh, bugs. And they were wearing smoking jackets. And so everybody in that house was smoking like a chimney. And Don and I are gagging. And uh, so we sit down at the kitchen table because we want to find out what this woman knows about uh, about the Richard's Cave. And uh, we no sooner sit down than uh, in comes this fellow. Now, do you remember the movie, uh, the... Uh, Magnificent Seven. Yeah. Yes. Well, that was a movie where the uh, the townsfolk were being overrun by these banditos, and they they hired this group of uh, seven gunslingers to clean out the 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 banditos. Well, in comes this fellow. He looks like one of the banditos from uh, the Magnificent Seven. There's, I have a picture of him in our book. His name is Trinidad Trini Chavez, and uh, it looks like he's been chomping on his hat. But uh, uh, I have a nice picture of him in the in the uh, in the book, and I had lost that picture for a number of years. I, I was really kicking myself because I it was a I thought it was a classic photo. Uh, he's just a classic bandito, and he sits down, 
and uh, he looked across from me, and he says, are you a lawyer? I said, no. He says, are you sure? I said, yeah, I'm not, not a lawyer, because I'm, if you are, I'm coming over there. I'm going to kill you. <laughs> I'm thinking, oh, my, oh my goodness, we got to get out of here. And uh, Don Schmidt always, uh, he likes wearing black. He likes wearing black. So he's all in, he's dressed all in black with black sunglasses. He looks like a classic revenueer. <laughs> so, <laughs> so he looks over at the guy and he says, well, what about him? Is he a lawyer? Uh, Don goes, no, 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 I'm not a lawyer. Well, if you are, because you're dead, too. <laughs> so we're thinking, my God, are we going to get out of here alive? So uh, it turns out that uh, Trini Chavez had gotten to the crash site with uh, – he had calm down. He, he had told us he had gotten to the crash site with Dan Richards. And uh, they're they're there on, on the periphery, just over, you know, they're they're hunched down, looking. He said they could see all these military guys down on their hands and knees, uh, picking up stuff from the desert floor and putting them in burlap bags. And uh, Treaty told Dan, he says, ah, blankety blank, I, I'm not going to be able to, to get any rec, uh, you know, some souvenirs because there's too many military guys there. And so Dan told him, he said. Uh, don't worry about it. I got a lot of stuff in my cave. I was here before. I got a lot of stuff in my cave. So Trini says, oh, okay, well, so they stay a while, then uh, then they left. Well, turns out Trini's father had also been to the site and had uh, gotten a piece, and, uh, but the military confiscated it. So we're, uh, we figure, well, uh, so he asked the missus, the, who was running the ranch here, well, what about, uh, do you know where Richard's cave is? She says, well, you know, I think the entrance to it is in Dan's old live, uh, Dan's old bedroom. I said, oh, my goodness, you got, <laughs> can you imagine a cave <laughs> emptying into your bedroom? So we went and took a look. No, it didn't. <laughs> I don't know where she got that story, but so Maybe we're just about to leave. <laughs> We're just about to leave, and I notice she's in the kitchen. She's cooking something in a pot, and it looked like the hind quarter of some furry animal with the fur still on it. <laughs> I'm thinking, oh my goodness, what is that? And she's she's uh, cooking away. You know, it's it's in a pot of water, and it's cooking, but there's a hoof there's a hoof on it, and there's fur. And I'm thinking, well, is that is that a cow or is that a what is, what is that? And she says. Uh, you boys are staying for dinner, aren't you? I said, no, no, we we have we have another interview back in Roswell. And I said, isn't that right, Don? And Don Don's sort of licking his chops, you know, like, mm, boy, I can't wait for this. And uh, we got out of there so fast, uh, you you uh, your head would spin. So that that was that was one of the strangest uh, interviews. We were lucky to, you know, we felt we felt. Uh, uh, gratified that we got out alive so wow. it, it's not all yeah. it's not all fun and games <laughs> you take you take them as they come and that one really was uh, something to, to cut to the chase we did we did find richard's cave we did find it it turned out to be a huge uh, sinkhole that had collapsed upon itself and it was actually fenced off by the bureau of land management but uh, I sent Don in there. Don, uh, go take a look. Uh, so, no, no, I'm not. So, but Don, 
Don stayed uh, on the roof of the cave. He didn't go inside because who knows it might collapse again, you know. Yeah. So he got he got to the roof of the cave, and I took a picture of him uh, from outside the fence. And uh, we have a picture of that in the book. Don's kneeling over the the entrance to the cave, which we didn't go in, but we do understand from another witness who did get into the cave before it collapsed that uh, all the wreckage that Dan had collected uh, had been uh, was not there anymore. So it suggests to us that the military, when they came to relieve the uh, the piece the piece of wreckage from uh, Trini Chavez's father, they also went to the Richards Cave and uh, retrieved uh, everything from there uh, that was from the wreck. So, but it took all that whole scenario took uh, almost a decade to complete. So, it, well, you know, you have to be in it for the long haul. Uh, we we sort of chuckle when when we hear people, well, I'm going to Roswell this weekend. I'm going to solve that case. <laughs> oh, that's oh, you know, wow, what have we been doing wrong? You know. <laughs> so well the what is the difference between well the when you were interviewing the adults besides that they were pretty old by then and the children that were um involved what was the difference between the interviews between well, the two many, many of the adults you know when we interview them they're in their uh they started out when we started out they were in six in their 60s then they were in their 70s then they were in their 80s and now the ones we're interviewing, which ones are left, the the youngsters back then are now in their late 80s, and uh, some are in their 90s. So you have to, as we speak, you have to be um, cognizant of the age of the person. If it's an older person, you have to handle them differently than a uh, a child, you know, some of the children and some of the grandchildren. We can we can speak as we're speaking now, but when you're speaking to somebody in their 90s, they they tend to rattle off. You know, they tend to uh, go off track, and you have to keep them you have to keep them focused on why you're there, and uh, and what and what subject we're talking about because. A lot of them, they, when they're that old, they like to tell you about their entire life, and you know that could right. take a couple of days. So, <laughs> the, the, the different techniques. That's a good question because there are there are different techniques involved. Youngsters, you don't have to, you know, they're, you know, like we're talking now. But uh, uh, the, we had a fellow a few years ago. He was in his uh, early nineties. Uh, he was an he was a an archaeologist, but uh, I remember when we had to interview him, we w- we would flip a coin, and the loser was the one that uh, had to interview him, because to get to get uh, thirty seconds of uh, information, you had to spend like a couple hours with him, because he kept going off on these tangents, and you and it took you a while to figure out, oh, he's not telling me about the case. He's going off on his life story again. And uh, it, it's uh, it's just uh, there's certain techniques you have to be well, aware of uh, uh, with whom you're speaking. Tom, you what have a that? chapter in your book. Uh, uh, wait, you, Tom, you have a chapter in your book, The Little Houdini, who made yes. a flying saucer disappear. Yes. But, Will you capture some of that essence? Yes, that was one of Don's chapters. Um, 
uh, actually, I had never heard of that until until I read the proof, the you know the proof of the book. I said, "Wow, what is this? I uh, I don't know that one." Well, it, it, he uh, Don had interviewed. I, I know he called me up one day, see, because I have a copy of the old base yearbook from Roswell from 1947. It's a, it's a photocopy. It's not like a uh, uh, you know one you get in the library. You know they have the the phone the phone books from every year. Well, the, get this: the phone books from uh, in the Roswell City Library for 1948. Now, if you have a 1948 phone book, that means most of the data in there was collected in 1947, right? Yeah, and, right. And that, that's the way it works. So, the 1948 there were there were two phone books for that year: one in the uh, Roswell uh, City Library and one in City Hall. Both of them. Uh, are missing for 1948. I do have a copy, a photocopy of the 1947 yearbook. I'm sorry, the the telephone book for Roswell. But you have to understand that's data from 1946, so it's not quite there of uh, uh, being 1947. So um, the 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 two the two from 48 are gone. So my goodness, uh, I forgot my train. <laughs> I forgot my train of thought. Um, where am I going? What was the question again? We were talking about the little Houdini who made a flying saucer. Oh yes, see there. I see now. There's an example. <laughs> 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 there's an example of what I <laughs> run into. <laughs> oh my goodness, uh, uh, that was unplanned. That was unplanned. I went off on a tangent, but the little Houdini. Uh, oh, that's what it was. Don had called me to check the city directory for 47 to see if a certain name was in it, and it was. So it turned out to be, the uh, Houdini turned out to be the name's father. Well, the father of Houdini in this chapter was a uh, dispatcher for the local, uh, at the local, there, there was a railroad spur that ran through Roswell just outside of the, the air base where the big hangar was, where all this wreckage was uh, stored. There was a railroad spur. I don't, I don't know which railroad it was, but he was a dispatcher, uh, you know, to make sure that they had enough boxcars for whatever was being, being, uh, you know, sent away. So, this one day that he had a he had a uh, request to be at the this uh, railroad spur just outside the base just outside where the big hangar was at a certain time so he was there uh, there was a box car that he had ready and uh, out comes a uh, a big uh, you know big truck from the this big hangar with all this funny wreckage in it and it pulls up to the gate. They say, open the gate. So he opens the gate, and uh, they unload all this stuff, all these little pieces of wreckage, into the boxcar. Well, he noticed that uh, in doing this, the, the uh, one of the airmen had dropped a piece uh, of, of the wreckage, and he didn't see it. And uh, he says, oh, boy, I wonder if he's going to leave that there or... 
or if he's going to pick it up. Well, they finished their loading and uh, they went back to they closed the gate and back they went to the to the base. And the airman didn't he for, he didn't see the the little piece. So uh, I forget the the gentleman's name. Uh, well, anyway, he went over. He uh, after he loaded if he shut the door on the box car. They signed off on the requisition, et cetera, et cetera. He goes over, and after they had left, he he put his foot on top of the piece of wreckage, and he sort of pressed it down into the into the earth to to cover it up. So, because he 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 didn't want to let anybody know that he was picking up something right there. So he put his foot on it and ground it into the dirt. He was going to come back later and get it. So that evening. It, I mean, it's dark outside. It's uh, real late at night. He gets in his car and he, he drives. He drives to the base, you know, where that was, where they were doing that uh, loading. And he says, "Oh, geez, I wonder. I wonder if it's there." He goes, "Ah, it's, it's there. They didn't see it." Well, of course not. It's late at night now. If they didn't see it during the day, what are they going to do at night? So he picks it up, puts it in his pocket, and goes home. I guess he showed it to his wife. We don't know, but uh, he didn't show it to his son. His his son. Now they kept it for. Uh, his son was real young, right? You know, too young to understand what 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 was what. Maybe, you know, two or three years old. Well, the son is now approaching his sixth birthday, and the father had kept this piece of wreckage. It was a piece of memory metal, the kind you can wad up in your hand. And uh, you open your hand over like a desk or a flat surface, and the thing just unfurls itself and just gently floats down without a crease, without a uh, – you can't scratch it, you can't cut it, without a crease, and it's what we call memory metal. There was a lot of it in the wreckage. Well, for this, his son's sixth birthday, he gives him a box. And the son says, "Oh, Dad. Well, thank you. Whatever, whatever. What is this?" He says, "Well, open, open the box." So he opens the box, and in there's this piece of metal, memory metal. And the kid says, "Well, what's this?" He says, "Well, pick it up. You'll find out." So he picks it up, and it's light as a feather. It's very thin. He crunches it up, and un. He does the he does the number on it. It unfurls itself and floats down to the table. Well, the the son is six years old. He has a little magic show that he does for his uh, six I guess six year old friends. <laughs> and uh, I guess what six years old you're in what uh, first, first grade, grade second grade, grade, something like that. And so he had. There was a little. They had a little, uh, little uh, hut, little little shack out in the backyard that he used to put on these uh, magic shows, such as they were for a six-year-old. And uh, so he started including for the grand trick uh, in his magic show. He would bring out this box with this little piece of memory metal, and he he would put it through its paces. And everybody would just sit there with their mouth open. Oh, my God, what is that? Well, after a while, adults started showing up because the kids <laughs> would go home and, and tell their parents about, hey, wow, little Johnny, he's got the, you want to see this. And so after a while, 
adults started showing up to the kids' magic show. And again, for the grand finale, he would do this little trick with the memory metal. Well, one day, uh, you know, it was time to do another show, and lo and behold, the uh, little box with the memory metal was gone. Somebody had somebody had stolen it. Now, whether whether it was one of the parents, one of the kids, or uh, or if the, if the parents had told somebody and word got around, nothing else was taken from this little this little uh, shack where they it was the club. Let's call it a clubhouse. A so shack sounds <laughs> pretty bad. Let's call it a, the kids' little clubhouse. And uh, nothing else was taken. Just this little box with the with the memory medal in it was never seen again. That's too uh-huh. bad. Can you tell us? Um, there's so that's form, that's the little former. that's the little okay. uh, that's where you get the the, the Houdini that was a little kid uh, doing his magic who <laughs> made the uh, uh, spaceship disappear. That that's how the Don came up with that title. But it's an interesting <laughs> story. But uh, uh, go, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to. Uh, uh, ask you to tell us about the former uh, NFL pro football player who was involved yes. and what was his role. Yes. Uh, what's interesting is in the book we we talk about so many families that were haunted by this event back in 1947. First, the appearance of aliens from outer space crashes on your doorstep. And then you get threatened by your own military who was sworn to protect you. You're threatened with your life by our own military to remain silent. So a lot of the families that this happened to, they, of course, remained silent until the uh, late 70s when civilians came a-knocking. And uh, they were haunted. Uh, there were a couple suicides, uh uh, we don't know if anybody was outed or not, but some people disappeared. And, as, you know, sort of every reaction. Well, there was this one fellow. Uh, I did not know he was from Roswell. He, he was a football player from, for the Philadelphia Eagles uh, NFL football team, who, by the way, haven't won a championship since 1960. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> Uh, that uh he played for the for the eagles in fact this fellow was on the the eagles last championship team his name was tom brookshire and it turns out uh, it's a long story how i found out he was from roswell my my wife actually found it when we were down there one one year uh she discovered his name on a uh, honorary plaque and uh they were. I noticed that they were all football players in the NFL, and one of the names on the plaque was uh, Tom Brookshire. I said, "Oh my goodness, I didn't know he was from Roswell." So when I got home, I called him up, and uh, Brookshire was a uh, he was a defensive back. He was an All Pro, but his uh, career ended abruptly when he broke his tibia. That's the big shin bone. Uh, in a game against the Chicago Bears in 1961. And uh, after that, he became a uh, renowned uh, football or sports broadcaster. He broadcasted uh, NFL games, and uh, he started in Philadelphia. He started the concept of all 
All Sports Radio, 24-7, All Sports, All Talk Radio. And uh, that was his idea, and he started that. Well, in 1947, he was 16 years old. And uh, he was a football player and a baseball player and a basketball player at Roswell High School. And he was also a, uh, his father owned a service station on Main Street in Roswell. Now, the air base, the Roswell Army Airfield, was like five miles south of town. And a lot of the uh, airmen who owned cars uh, would uh, would fill up their cars at his father's gas station on Main Street. And Tom, especially during summer vacation, which is when this happened, he would he would spend days pumping gas at his father's gas station. He, he got to know a lot of the fellas at the base, and uh, you know, from pumping their gas and from also uh, playing them in various sporting events. So I called up I called up Tom when I got back home. Uh, this was like 2008. I called him up. I said, uh, uh, I, I understand you're from Roswell. And uh, he said, Well, yes. I said, Do you remember the 1947 uh, UFO? Incident. He says, "Oh, sure. I mean, I mean, he. I mean, it's like he never forgot it." And uh, uh, so I said, "Do you have any firsthand knowledge of it?" He says, "Oh, yeah. Well, he says uh, what was interesting was that uh, when this happened, it was like the base went into a lockdown, like a iron curtain had dropped over it. Nothing was getting in or getting out." The only things moving were airplanes that were flying in and flying out, nothing on the ground. I said, well, how how long did that last? He said, well, almost a week. And when the curtain was lifted, he said it was never the same between the, between the base and the city of Roswell. Uh, the fellas were no doubt, well, we know for sure that they were told not to talk about the event. So the way they handled that is they just didn't talk. They'd come into town and didn't talk to the civilians. And the town itself became very distrustful of the of the base after that. And the base finally closed in 1967. So it lasted another 20 years, but uh, it was never the same after that. There was an air of distrust between both parties. And uh, Tom Brookshire was there at the time, and uh, he 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 was very aware of it because he knew he knew some of the airmen there uh, from the base. And the other thing he knew was that uh, there was uh, he he got to see the, a piece of the strange memory metal. Some Ooh. of some of his uh, football fa- uh, friends uh, ran into him at the gas station one day. He said, "Do you under?" You know, did you see that piece of metal that uh, Roy Tyner has? Now, this is just after the the whole thing had died down. He said, they said yeah, he's got this strange piece of metal over there. You want to see it? So, of course, uh, Tom says, "Well, let's go over. Let's take a look at it." So, they go over to Roy Tyner's welding shop, and of course, Roy uh, Tyner is welding away there. He's got he's got the torch going. He's welding. And he says, "What do you guys want?" We want to see that piece of metal. We want to see that piece of metal you got. 
nah, get out of here. He said, well, we're not leaving till you show us that piece of metal. So he puts his torch out, his acetylene torch, and uh, goes over to his desk, pulls out from one of the drawers something, something that he wadded up in his hand, and he comes back over to the boys, and he holds his right arm out straight, and there's something in his clenched fist or something in his clenched fist. So he opens his fist, and out unfurls this silvery piece of metal about the size of the palm of your hand, just floating there in the air as it gently floats down to the floor. And they, the boys are dumbfounded because they figure whatever it was would go to, you know, drop to the floor, but it just sort of floated there. And they said, do that again, do that again. So Roy Tyner grabs it out of midair. And he wads it up again in his hand and opens it, and there it just floats again. And he finally says, you boys see enough? Now get out of here. So they they wanted to know where he got it. Where did you get that? And he said, uh, some, somebody up, uh, you know, somebody who was at the flying, that flying saucer crash uh, uh, gave it to me. So he got it. Somebody had dropped in his shop and had given him the piece that he was keeping in a drawer. So now Brookshire... I mentioned the the all of the families that were haunted by this and had a negative experience. Brookshire himself, you've met people that are just sort of naturally affable. You know, they see humor in everything, and nothing seems to affect him. And he was one of those types of people. He always had a humorous quip, and uh, it obviously the, the the 1947 event did not affect him in a negative way at all, and. Uh, uh, you know, he was a, a all-star football player and uh, made the professionals. Uh, his number has been retired by the Eagles. Uh, everybody in Philadelphia loved Tom Brookshire. I would say he is in the highest pantheon of, say, five athletes ever to play sports in Philadelphia. Uh, he is in that pantheon. He's held in that high esteem in Philadelphia. So, wow. But in 1947, he... He was one of the children of Roswell. <laughs> Tom, we have about maybe five minutes left. Um, would you please share, you know what, you have other things that you're doing. Would you please share what's on your uh, upcoming agenda with what you have on your yes. plate? Yes, uh, you. we're trying to, uh, as we speak, we our, our one of our Roswell books was optioned. Uh, the Children of Roswell is our fourth uh, book about Roswell. Uh, an earlier book called Witness to Roswell is uh, a script. It's been optioned by a, uh, by Stellar Productions in Burbank. And uh, for a couple of years now, the, the script has been written, and we're trying to get it sold as a, a major motion picture. But so far, uh, it hasn't happened. But uh, we're still trying. We're also now trying, and this is brand new, to uh, develop a five-part miniseries based on our latest book, The Children of Roswell, which, by the way, you can get at Barnes & Noble or at Amazon.com or BarnesandNoble.com uh, on the Internet. And now the inter- Internet, you can get it uh, in pay, you know regular hard hardbound book. You can get it in Kindle. You can get it on e-book. You can, it's even out in... Uh, Audio books, so you whatever whatever your preference, you can get that on Amazon, and uh, uh, so that's pretty much right now what we're doing. We're still, of course, Don and I are still on the case, 
And uh, this July, we'll, we'll be down in Roswell again during the – they have a UFO festival every July in recognition of the 1947 event. And Don and I have been speakers down there for at least 20 years, the last 20 years, and we'll be down there again this year. So uh, – that's what's going on at the moment. Uh, we're sort of in the, uh, we're sort of, what do they call it, uh, w- when you're sort of relaxing uh, after, uh, uh, since, you know, for writing your, when you write your book and things get really hectic, we're sort of in now the relaxation mode now that the book is out. So um, uh, that's where we're at right now. Do you think you two will write another book together? Oh, yeah, Absolutely. Uh, next year is the 70th anniversary, so we we absolutely uh, plan on writing a book for next year, and it might be our last book on Roswell because everybody's pretty near gone now. But uh, we're going to sort of summarize the whole thing uh, with our conclusions, and uh, you know we have over 600 witnesses, uh, first and second hand, and so we we pretty much have the case nailed. But we want to put something out uh, uh, with a title like uh, the Roswell Verdict or the Verdict of History, something like that, for next year. So we have our website is www.roswellinvestigator.com. You can uh, see our pictures there, and uh, if you survive that, you you can see <laughs> uh, you can order a book. And uh, uh, but uh, we are we are uh, this is a quest. That we've been on it now for a quarter of a century. I'm, it's the only case I've been investigating since 1991. We, Tom, well, we, we really want to thank you for ongoing investigations and keeping our public apprised to new findings as well. This has been so great. You know, we look. Yeah. We could go on for another hour. This is. <laughs> I know. Thank you for sharing all your your great stories. I mean, I, I know our listening audience. We'll enjoy this interview. Well, it's been well uh, my pleasure. It's been uh, my distinct pleasure. And, uh, you know, uh, sharing your stories is, uh, uh, I, I, it's, I've learned, uh, I've done a number of interviews, and it turns out that I, I never tell the same story in the same way. So uh, you're, you're probably used to that, but uh, it's interesting. You, you uh you could tell the same story, but it it comes out every time it comes out, it comes out different. I mean, you know, a little subtly in a subtle way. But yeah. uh, uh, I, I hope you found them interesting. And uh, uh, it's did. been a uh, to do something for 25 years. It has to be a labor of love, and certainly uh, the Roswell incident has kept my interest for so long because it's a uh, it's a labor of love, which uh, sounds odd, but. Uh, I, I don't know how you could uh, stick to doing something for so long if you didn't really like it. Well, you know, well, life, we thank you. Life brings, <laughs> I was going to say, life brings us um, that, those intricacies that we, we could hardly believe ourselves as we deliver this information. And so, you know, we're all in this boat, and we're so happy that you're you're still <laughs> moving around giving us <laughs> Giving it, well, we, it. we thank well, you for like sharing say, your some, labor of love. <laughs> like they say, somebody had to do it, right? Yeah. Right. <laughs> well, we need to go, and we thank you so much. Have a great day, well, Tom. Well, you too, Taz and Paula, right? 
Right. You got it. See, I remember I remembered your names. Okay. <laughs> Have a great day. Have a great day. Uh-huh. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye.